Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox in for Tiffany Meyer. Here are today's top stories. North Korea today releasing Private Travis King. Find out how Sweden helped the U.S. getting the soldier back and what his future could hold. Senator Bob Menendez denying any wrongdoing and pleading not guilty today as Senate Democrats call for his resignation over bribery charges. We examine the ins and outs of Trump's New York fraud case with one of his attorneys after a judge rules against Trump. We unpack the arguments. New information about Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings out today. What's in the hundreds of pages from the IRS whistleblowers? Biden visits a California for a short campaign trip. He attends a series of private fundraisers addressing the potential shutdown and AI. Tonight, seven presidential hopefuls enter round two of the Republican primary debates. What will it take for them to get ahead in the race? North Korea today releasing an American soldier. The U.S. got Private Travis King back with the help of Sweden. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the details. The United States has secured the return of Private Travis King from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. The State Department on Wednesday announcing that the soldier who sprinted into North Korea is on his way back to the U.S. Private Travis King ran across the heavily fortified border between North and South Korea two months ago. The State Department says North Korea's release does not indicate a breakthrough in diplomatic relations with the communist regime. We tried to reach out on a number of occasions. They rejected our direct approaches and uh, ended up uh, uh, talking to uh, Sweden. Uh, and Sweden talked to us and helped negotiate this transfer. The announcement has surprised some observers who expected North Korea to drag out his detention. A former White House official says Private King might not have been of high value to them. He was extensively debriefed, so I'm sure they found out whatever they need to find out. And then, you know, it's it's matter of, it, did, it does cost some, to keep somebody for a lifetime, right? Um, so, it, I mean, there's a financial cost, there's a logistically, you need to have somebody always staying with him, there's a language barrier. So after finding out maybe that Travis was not of, well, they've got everything they needed out of him. The State Department on Wednesday laying out the route King traveled to get back to U.S. custody. He was transported to the border between North Korea and China, where he was met by our ambassador to the People's Republic of China, Nicholas Burns. He then boarded a State Department op-med plane and flew from Dandong, China to Xinjiang, China, and then on from Xinjiang to Osan Air Force Base in South Korea, where he was transferred to the Department of Defense. King's expulsion almost certainly does not end his troubles. He has been declared absent without leave from the army. This can mean time in military jail, loss of pay, or even dishonorable discharge. King will reportedly be taken to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio when he returns to the U.S. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. And Democrats want embattled Senator Bob Menendez to step down. But today he pleaded not guilty to bribery conspiracy charges. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more details. Senator Bob Menendez maintaining his innocence Wednesday at a federal arraignment hearing in Manhattan. The senator and his wife, Nadine, who also pleaded not guilty, faced three counts as part of an alleged bribery conspiracy. The couple are accused of taking bribes from three New Jersey businessmen in exchange for the senator's influence. Menendez was released on $100,000 bond. 
Meanwhile, around 30 Senate Democrats have called on Menendez to resign, including House Democrat Chair Pete Aguilar and Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin. It doesn't bring me or any of us joy to say uh, that he should resign, uh, but he should. Uh, for the betterment of the Democratic Party, uh, for the people of New Jersey, it's better that he fights this trial um, outside of the halls of Congress. Durbin, who previously supported Menendez, changed course Wednesday, saying in a social media post, leaders in New Jersey, including the governor and my Senate colleague, Cory Booker, have made it clear that Senator Menendez can no longer serve. He should step down. Senator Booker said in a statement Tuesday that it was a mistake for Menendez to refuse to step down and that stepping down would be best for the senator's constituents. Senator Chuck Schumer broke his silence at a press conference on Wednesday. Like you, I was just deeply disappointed, disturbed when I read the indictment. But we all know that senators, for senators, there's a much, much higher standard. And clearly, when you read the indictment, Senator Menendez fell way, way below that standard. Tomorrow, he will address the Democratic caucus, and we'll see what happens after that. Schumer stopped short of saying Menendez should resign. Other Senate Democrats also didn't call for Menendez to step down. Rhode Island Senator Jack Reed said he thinks the court should play out. Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto said it's up to the voters to decide. Menendez is up for re-election in 2025. Will he leave his post? And what happens if he does? Under the Constitution, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy can appoint someone from either party to fill the seat. That person would serve out the rest of Menendez's term, which expires on January 3, 2025. Steph? Thanks, Arlene. And next, we'll examine some of the arguments and counter-arguments put forward in State Attorney General Letitia James's case against former President Trump. The judge ruled yesterday that Trump and his company committed fraud while building his real estate empire, an assertion that his defense attorneys say has no basis in fact. Earlier today, I spoke with Jesse Benal, an attorney for the former president in his other civil cases. Jesse Benal, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for joining us. The recent ruling by Judge Arthur Engeron accusing Donald Trump and his company of committing fraud while building his real estate empire. Could you provide some insights into the key arguments made by the New York Attorney General Letitia James in this case? Well, I mean, it's a very sad day, uh, again, in, in America, that we're having to look at a, at a ruling like this that, quite frankly, continues to target uh, President Trump based on his politics and rather uh, on the law. Um, the attorney general has made the claim uh, that there was fraud involved in uh, President Trump's real estate dealings uh, without any basis in law or in fact. It's so incredible that um, even the judge uh, found that Mar-a-Lago, a, a property that's probably worth close to a billion dollars, if you look at some experts, was only worth about 18 million. Somehow that was a basis for fraud. Um, it shows a, a lack of understanding of the law, um, and it's, uh, again, this, this politicalization of our legal system um, that is tearing at the very threads of our constitutional system of government in this country. If there is weight to that argument, do you expect Trump's legal team to appeal on those grounds? Would another judge rule differently on this, do you think? 
Oh, I think there will absolutely be appeals in this case. I, I mean, there are two levels of appeals that this can go to just in the state court in New York alone. Um, and that's uh, the, the first level is called the appellate division of the New York Supreme Court. Um, and then the next level above that is the court of appeals. And so really what we're going to see is, uh, is the, the New York justice system uh, still sufficiently uh, impartial that there are, are judges that will apply the law rather than just hop on the bandwagon that we see too often right now in places like New York and Washington, D.C. of get Trump. And you mentioned that there were varying valuations for some of the properties, including Mar-a-Lago. How is it, what uh, justification has Letitia James used to decide which valuation to use? And how does that relate to the fraud charges? Well, I mean, she, she has looked at various different models to try to uh, gauge what the appropriate value for um, for these properties are, and then try to claim that somehow he lied um, to creditors. And I think it's important to remember that no creditor missed a payment, um, that none of these creditors were, actually, were, were harmed, that there were statements um, in the uh, uh, all the financial disclosures saying that essentially their estimates and they shouldn't be relied upon and, and reliance as a, as a key part of fraud. And there's a reason that you do that in property because property and the law recognizes this property by its very nature is unique. The value of a property changes at any point because in order to know what the value is, you have to find a willing buyer and a willing seller. So to be able to determine what that is can be uh, can fluctuate widely, especially when you're looking at, you know, for instance, Mar-a-Lago, one of the most unique pieces of property in the entire world. Uh, while Letitia James may be arguing that, you know, you have to remember this is someone that ran for office saying that she was going to get Donald Trump, that this is this is a mob rule type situation in our in our judiciary um, and, and, you know, both by the prosecutor and then unfortunately by the by the judge as well. And uh, so those, um, you know, trying to say, for instance, that Mar-a-Lago is, is worth between 18 and 26 million dollars by anyone who knows uh, Florida real estate is just laughable. Um, you know, I saw somebody say, oh, it's worth $18 million. Can I have 10 of them? Because there is no universe in which you know, Mar-a-Lago is, is worth 18 to $26 million. You know, there's there's a clump of trees down the road uh, from Mar-a-Lago that's undeveloped, that's on a much smaller par parcel of, of land that's worth, I think, uh, currently in the market for $150 million. If they tried to make that argument in a judicial system that wasn't controlled by the left wing, they would be laughed out of court. Unfortunately, they're making that uh, argument in a in a judicial system that is uh, very much focused on getting Donald Trump, not on doing justice. Jesse Banal, thank you so much. Great to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you so much for having me. A new information about Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings out today. House members released hundreds of pages in relation to the investigation. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more. 
IRS whistleblowers who previously testified on Hunter Biden's tax evasion gave documents to the House Ways and Means Committee. That committee reviewed those documents today in an executive closed-door session, after which they did vote to release partially redacted versions of those documents to the public. These documents, of course, pertain back to Hunter Biden's foreign cash flow and how or if that relates back to President Biden. Although Biden has denied any involvement in these business deals, here's Jason Smith, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, explaining what exactly is in these new documents now released to the public. How then Vice President Biden's April 2014 official visit to Ukraine occurred only days after a series of meetings between Hunter Biden and Vice President Biden himself. Hunter Biden sent an email to Devin Archer saying, quote, we need to get to Mexico City and cement the deal with Miguel. Public records show Joe Biden later used Air Force Two to shuttle Hunter and another business associate, Jeff Cooper, to Mexico City. And Congressman Tim Burchett did tell me that there is another piece of evidence recently released by the Oversight Committee that caught his eye. I think um, this latest, though, with the, the wire transfer from China going to Joe Biden's home address and with him listed as the recipient in the um, in the text. I think that's pretty damning. There's no other way around it. And those wires did happen at the time that Biden was running for the office of the president. All of this comes just one day before the House Oversight Committee is set to hold that first hearing on the impeachment inquiry into the president. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And President Biden addresses the potential government shutdown. His comment comes as he visits California for a series of private fundraisers and a meeting with tech advisors. NTD's David Lamb reports. President Biden visits California for a two-day trip. He attended several private fundraisers in the San Francisco Bay Area on Tuesday evening before making his way down the peninsula on Wednesday. We're in a situation where we used to uh, have a significant portion of our GDP going into research and development. And uh, it got down to 0.7% from 2%. Biden's remarks came as he met with the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Speakers said they will report on recommendations on medical patient safety and experience, as well as possibilities and risks of artificial intelligence. They want to use it to predict weather extremes as climate change, create materials, and understand the origins of the universe. Biden's visit and fundraiser events come as Congress continues to grapple with an impending government shutdown on October 1st. Both houses are unable to agree on budget bills. But Biden told reporters during his California visit, I don't think anything's inevitable in politics. And I'll just say, if we have a government shutdown, a lot of vital work in science and health could be impacted, from cancer research to food safety. While the Biden administration is looking into AI technology, Jim Shoemaker, running for California Senate, told NTD the administration's economic policies have hindered technological growth in California. This state is so powerful in the ability to create new technology that it's foolish for this administration that we have to stifle that technology advancements that we have. Biden plans to head to Arizona Wednesday night. 
In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Meanwhile, in the GOP, Republican candidates will duke it out tonight in the second primary debate. What can we expect? And I think this time it's going to be a much more contentious debate. And Haley and DeSantis especially are going to get a lot more attacks from the other candidates. And it'll be interesting to see how they stand up to that pressure. Aaron Call, a debate expert at University of Michigan, says the candidates can't just attack each other to do well. But he does think the key to getting ahead is to attack Trump, the frontrunner by a wide margin. A recent CNN poll shows former President Trump maintaining a comfortable lead as we head into the second debate. He holds an average of 58 percent support, with Governor Ron DeSantis holding a distant second at 15 percent. Seven candidates will spar tonight, including DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy and former Vice President Mike Pence. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson didn't meet the requirements this time, and Trump has declined to participate. The debate is being held at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. It starts at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, California gets a gun tax. The funds are earmarked to go towards public schools. The governor also signed into law a series of other gun control measures. From southern borders to New York City streets, Texas Governor Greg Abbott discusses the immigration crisis facing the nation. The Biden administration wants to house illegal immigrants in national parks, but the House is skeptical. Find out how it's playing out. And did Dr. Anthony Fauci attempt to influence the CIA in its investigation of COVID-19? We speak with a physician and former ambassador about the allegations when we come back. A first in the nation, California now has a firearm tax. The governor has also signed into law a series of gun bills ranging from concealed carry to micro stamping. NTD Zaili Nang has more. Governor Gavin Newsom signed a series of gun control measures into law on Tuesday. One is AB 28. It raises taxes on guns and ammunition to pay for more security at public schools and various violence prevention programs. We need to do more to protect our kids and we need to do more to protect our communities. And this very simple, very straightforward excise tax is going to raise historic resources. The federal government already has sales taxes on guns and ammunition at either 10 or 11 percent, depending on the type of gun. The law Newsom signed adds another 11 percent tax on top of that, making California the only state with its own tax on guns and ammunition. Newsom said that gun violence already costs taxpayers a lot of money in health impacts and the criminal justice system. This is not a general income tax, not a corporate tax. This is not, uh, this is a, from my perspective, more of a sin tax uh, where there's a cause and effect and justification. The law is expected to generate $160 million annually. In an email statement to NTD, the California Rifle and Pistol Association said the law would not have any effect on criminals. The governor says this is only a tax on the gun industry, but the gun industry is not responsible for criminals terrorizing store owners and citizens. Those policies fall squarely on Newsom and a legislature who refuses to take any real action against those who commit crimes in our state. The association's president has also criticized the new laws, calling them unconstitutional. 
Newsom also signed a law overhauling state rules for carrying concealed weapons. California's new law bans people from carrying guns in nearly all public places, including public parks and playgrounds, public demonstrations and gatherings, amusement parks, churches, banks, and any place where alcohol is sold. Newsom also signed a law that would require all semi-automatic pistols sold in California to have micro-stamping technology starting July 2028. So what this does is it allows law enforcement to solve crimes more quickly because it connects the bullet to the gun. According to 2021 data from the CDC, California ranks second out of 50 states for the most number of gun-related deaths recorded. The state has a lower death rate due to its large population. California also has the most number of gun laws in the country. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott visited New York City today to address the border crisis. He highlighted the immigration challenges faced not only by New York, but also by Texas and the rest of the nation. And TD's Jason Perry attended the event, which took place at a venue near the Roosevelt Hotel. Roosevelt Hotel. I'm here in New York City, right outside of Roosevelt Hotel. It's been the city's intake center for immigrants. And while I was standing here, a man from Senegal approached me and asked me where he needed to go. So we talked to some workers right outside of this entrance, and they pointed the man in this direction to an entrance over here. New York City continues to deal with this immigration crisis, and Governor Abbott says that's just a fraction of what Texas sees on a daily basis. We have, in, in any one particular location, thousands of people crossing the border in a mad rush type of way. Texas Governor Greg Abbott was in New York City on Wednesday. He spoke at the Manhattan Institute about the nation's border crisis. And he shared some surprising numbers regarding the illegal immigrants currently in New York City. How many migrants do you have here? 120,000, something like that? Texas has bussed 15,800 to New York. Where do these other people come from? The Biden administration. Abbott explained that Texas has deployed the National Guard and the Texas Department of Public Safety to help deal with the crisis. And the National Guard has been setting up miles of razor wire along the U.S.-Mexico border. The Biden administration had their Border Patrol go in and cut that razor wire that we put up, pull it open, and there was an onrush of thousands of illegal immigrants pouring into the country. Abbott also said Texas is now building border barriers between Texas and New Mexico to stop illegal immigrants from crossing into El Paso. Never forget, it was just three years ago, we had the lowest number of border crossings in 40 years. It's kind of hard for people to understand or remember but it proves this, and that is the president of the United States can ha have an outsized impact on illegal immigration across the border. And last week, over 8,600 people crossed the U.S.-Mexico border in a 24-hour period, according to an official from the Department of Homeland Security. That's up from about 3,500 per day after Title 42 ended in May. And Abbott said the solution is for the Biden team to just follow the laws already in place. Not have to pass new laws enforce the current laws on the books. Until that time comes, Texas is going to continue to use every tool that we can to secure the border the best that we can. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. 
And the Biden administration's plan to house illegal immigrants on federal lands and in national parks is under scrutiny. A House committee held a hearing today examining the proposal. The Housing Committee on Natural Resources held a hearing Wednesday on the Biden administration's use of National Park Service lands to house illegal immigrants. Earlier this month, the Biden administration agreed to lease Floyd Bennett Field to New York City. The site is part of the Gateway National Recreation Area and will temporarily house 2,500 of the immigrants. The endless flow of illegal immigrants over our southern border is not only destroying individual cities and states, it's destroying our country. Now the Biden administration is looking to spread this chaos to one of America's greatest ideas, our national parks. When announcing the Biden administration's decision, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said his own administration has, quote, been forced to unsustainably open new site after new site as asylum seekers continue to arrive by the thousands. Democratic New York State Assembly member Jamie Williams, whose district includes Floyd Bennett Field, said she has grave concerns over the proposal. She emphasized that the site has no infrastructure, no plumbing, no electricity, and no sewage system. Floyd Bennett Field, a national park, is a treasure of natural beauty and biodiversity. Housing individuals here is equivalent to tarnishing the sanctity of Yellowstone National Park. The irreversible damage of flora and fauna and the destruction of our natural beauty are contrary to the ethos of con conservation and preservation that national parks symbolize. Kenneth Spencer, chairman of the U.S. Park Police Fraternal Force of Police, expressed concerns over the agency's readiness to protect the public and the immigrants themselves. Let me be perfectly clear. Even without the migrant shelter on Floyd Bennett Field, we are at least 300 officers short of our required minimum level. Our capacity to serve and protect the public today is literally bursting at the seams. The idea that the U.S. Park Police is prepared to address 2,000 new migrants left under tents with nothing to do and no ability to communicate is not only imprudent, but it is also perilous. Spencer said there are currently only 25 sworn officers assigned to the unit and only two officers on duty per shift. He also said the Park Police Unit lacks modern facilities and telecommunication services. Natural Resources Committee Chairman Bruce Westerman recently wrote a letter to the Secretary of the Interior and the Director of the National Park Service demanding an explanation of the agreement. In the letter, he argued that national parks are not a place to temporarily or permanently encamp persons experiencing a lack of housing options. And staying on the national stage, Dr. Anthony Fauci is now accused of secretly visiting the CIA's headquarters during the pandemic where he allegedly tried to influence the agency's official findings in their investigation into the origins of the pandemic. That's according to U.S. Representative from Ohio, Brad Wenstrup, the chairman of the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic, who described the concerning information in a letter he sent to the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services. Earlier, I spoke with physician and former U.S. Ambassador, Dr. Jeff Gunter, He's also currently running for the U.S. Senate in Nevada. Dr. Gunter, great to have you on our show. Thanks so much for coming on. As a doctor and an experienced diplomat, how do you view the allegations that Dr. Anthony Fauci attempted to influence the CIA's investigation into the origins of COVID-19? I'd uh, give a solution or an answer just like Yogi Berra did, the famous baseball coach. It's deja vu all over again. 
none of this is particularly surprising to me. During my medical school years, I was uh, cutting my teeth during HIV from 83 to 87. I remember Dr. Fauci then. When I was heading up the U.S. Embassy, um, uh, thanks to our great president, Donald Trump, I let the team know that I believed that this virus came from a bat to a bottle and somehow got out of the lab back then. Then when I read the uh, emails of various scientists going and talking to Fauci before he published that article of the proximal origins of COVID in Nature, one of the premier journals, which clearly now was a misdirection of the American public, it's not surprising. It's Fauci deja vu all over again. It's sad, it's disheartening. The American public deserve and need to know the truth about the worst pandemic the world has ever seen. In your view, are there any indications of political or national security motives behind the alleged suppression of the lab leak theory by public health authorities? It's a fantastic question. We all know that when you mix medicine with politics, what do you get? You get politics. It was so obvious when it happened, when COVID came out to me, that it was a lab leak. And it turns out that it was being funded by Fauci. So absolutely, absolutely, they're trying to craft the narrative. More people died with COVID with Joe Biden than they did with President Trump. The jury's still out on the effectiveness of vaccines. They say that it limits hospitalizations and severe illness. There's no evidence to show that it makes you less infectious to the other people. I just checked the CDC hospitalizations for COVID right now in Nevada. They're not significantly high. Deaths are down. So what does that tell you? It tells you that there's an election coming up. It tells you that when you mix politics with medicine, especially with this administration, you get politics. Former President Trump has been criticized for some of his policies during the pandemic as well. And he was at the time being advised by Dr. Fauci. Exactly. What, how do you consider the role of these advisors and, and how do we perhaps instill more transparency and trust in those roles? It's a really great question you're asking. And I believe you're asking, how do we trust these guys? Who do we trust? How do we know who to trust these so-called experts and advisors? And myself as US ambassador in Iceland, I had the same issue. Luckily, I had a medical background and I knew when people were less than trustworthy and their information was not as good as it should have been. Um, I think the greatest thing that President Trump did during the pandemic was that he was flexible and there was no mandates. He was not forcing people to do anything. He might have suggested that we use a vaccine. He never mandated it. And, and that's the beauty. And uh, quite honestly, as a US ambassador from Iceland, I had foreign countries complaining to myself that President Trump had stopped travel to China, complaining that President Trump had stopped travel to Europe. And this is very early on in the pandemic. So in spite of all the misinformation he was getting, really kind of somewhat crooked advisors, I think he did a tremendous job. Great to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much, Ambassador Dr. Jeff Gunter. Thank you so much. God bless you and thank you for having me. Coming up, why did money from Chinese nationals go to the Biden's Delaware home? We'll dive into the timeline and the potential impact of this new evidence. And lawmakers probe China infiltrating the US. Who are the primary targets and how is China flying under the radar? We'll hear from experts and lawmakers when we come back. Welcome back. Another new revelation about the Biden family. Chinese nationals allegedly sent over $200,000 to Hunter Biden 
while Joe Biden was campaigning for president. The beneficiary's address listed for the wire transfer was the Biden family home in Delaware. That's according to bank documents obtained by the House Judiciary Committee. To learn more, I spoke with Jeff Carlson, an investigative journalist and the co-host of Truth Over News on Epic TV. Jeff, great to have you on our show. Welcome back. Thank you for having me, Stefania. Good to see you. Likewise. Now, I want to look at these transfers that have been made that we've discovered from uh, Chinese nationals to Hunter Biden. What's the significance of this in your eyes? Well, you know, I think I think one of the big areas of significance is who the money came from. The $250,000 that, you know, we just was disclosed yesterday came from a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Lee, L.I. And Jonathan Lee goes back with the Biden sometime, at least to 2013. And Jonathan Lee is the CEO of Bohai Capital, and that is a subsidiary of the Bank of China. Just to keep it real simple, what happened here in 2013, Hunter Biden traveled on Air Force Two with his father. He met with Jonathan Lee. He introduced Jonathan Lee to his father, the then vice president. Ten days later, Hunter Biden's firm got a $1 billion capital contribution from Jonathan Lee. And now these two have maintained touch over time. In 2015, Hunter Biden and Jonathan Lee were trying to arrange a special visit for the president of China to the L.A. area. And we have correspondence linking those two. Now, this is the same gentleman that sent the $250,000 payment to Hunter Biden in 2019, the payment that got disclosed yesterday. And what's so interesting about this payment is it went to Joe Biden's home. And the reason it went to Joe Biden's home is Hunter had listed that as the address of record. Well, it looks like he wasn't living there at the time. Why do you think he would have listed that as his address? Or what does that show us about President Biden's connection to this? Yeah, well, I think what it shows us, you know, as you said, at that time, Hunter was living in California. He was living in the uh, the, the hills here. And he, uh, I think he'd been living for about a year. And, I, you know, the way I see it is Hunter is viewing that address as the permanent address of record for sort of his business and Joe Biden's house in Wilmington rather than his home out here. That was what he viewed as the static business address for him. Where does all this put uh, President Biden's claim that his family has never accepted money from China? Well, that is just blown out of the water. I mean, this is something we've known before. We can trace a number of different payments from various Chinese figures, including Jonathan Lee, to the Bidens. But yes, in 2020, Biden said emphatically that no family member has taken any money from China. And here is another data point that absolutely destroys that narrative. And yet President Biden has maintained a similar stance on the, these matters um, even to the present day. So how should viewers, um, you know, approach this latest revelation in, in relation to his stance? I mean, we started all of this with saying that, you know, Joe Biden never talked to his son Hunter about business. And then we knew we found out that was untrue. And then it became Joe Biden never talked to, never spoke with Hunter's business partners. Well, then we found out that he spoke with his business partners. You know, then he tried to pretend that he never talked to them about business. Well, we, we know that actually he did talk to them about business. You know, now we have this narrative that the Biden family never took any money from China. Yeah, they absolutely took money from China. So this, this case is, is building, and we have the House Republicans holding their first oversight panel um, hearing 
into their impeachment inquiry uh, tomorrow. So how do you expect these latest revelations to impact that and the proceedings going forward? Well, I don't know that this one individual data point is going to have a whole lot of impact one way or the other. They already have a large amount of evidence. I mean, frankly, you know, the thing that we've been focused on is why haven't they been doing more on this? You know, they keep coming out with this new information on Hunter. Why haven't they subpoenaed Hunter a long, long time ago over this? They've had, you know, nine months of control of the House to do something and they haven't done it. I am glad to see that we're moving forward with an impeachment inquiry into Biden. And I think what they should absolutely do is focus on following the money. And that ultimately is going to tell the best of all stories. Um, you know, we're really, we're really, we've arrived at the point where the last line of defense is we don't actually have money being in, deposited into Joe Biden's pocket, into an account, let's say, that he directly and solely owns. But we have everything else. And I don't think anybody expects to find money going straight to Biden. There's a reason the Biden family constructed 20 different holding companies, well, more than 20 holding companies through which money transfers. The whole purpose of that is to obfuscate, to make it very difficult to trace money flows. All right, Jeff Carlson, always great to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much for having me on. Good to see you. Next, how the Chinese regime exports its influence abroad. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill today looked into the Chinese Communist Party's coercive tactics here on U.S. soil. NTD's Sam Wang brings us more. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence held a hearing on Wednesday to discuss the Chinese Communist Party's malign influence operations on U.S. soil. China's malign influence operations in the United States spring from a conspiratorial tradition within the Chinese Communist Party that goes by the label of the United Front. The United Front is a political strategy carried out by the Chinese Communist Party to expand its interests, both domestically and overseas. Party leader call it a magic weapon. The operation mobilizes organization and key individuals to advocate on the CCP's behalf and neutralize those whom they see as potential opponents to the party's agenda. The party recognizes no autonomous zone of civil society. In principle, it reserves the right to supervise and control everything. And according to Senator Mark Warner, Chinese people living in the U.S. aren't the only target of this operation. In both its influence and coercion activities, the PRC has focused attention on those it perceives who shape U.S. policy. And that goes from business elites to mayors to journalists to even folks at think tanks. Sarah Cook, the senior China advisor at Freedom House, said that the CCP has deployed a variety of sophisticated tactics to spread its influence here in the U.S. In particular, we identified five categories of tactics. Propaganda, disinformation, censorship and intimidation, control over content distribution infrastructure, and attempts to export the CCP's model of information control. Lawmakers said that Washington should confront the Chinese Communist Party's coercion, but not the Chinese people given that they're often a direct target of the regime. Sam Wong, NTD News. Coming up, the Las Vegas Strip may shut down. This is a possibility if the Culinary Union walks off the job. The union has already authorized a strike. Teens are hit by over 200 phone notifications a day, with some getting over 500, taking a toll on their ability to focus. We speak with a psychotherapist about it. And in the NBA, a blockbuster trade as Damian Lillard is finally leaving Portland. Find out where the seven-time All-Star is headed when we come back. 
As the Hollywood writer's strike comes to an end, another work stoppage could soon begin. In Las Vegas, hospitality workers have voted overwhelmingly in favor of a strike against hotels and casinos. I spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma for more details. Don, great to have you back again. How's it going? It's going great. How about yourself, Steph? Pretty well. Thank you so much for asking. Um, I want to look now at this latest strike. It seems to be a year of increasing strikes. What's the latest with this culinary workers strike? Right. Uh, so on Tuesday night, uh, tens of thousands of workers from from this powerful culinary union are uh, and bartenders union, um, they voted 95 percent in favor for a strike in Las Vegas. So the union leadership is now authorized to call a strike. Uh, but currently, uh, negotiations with several hotels uh, are still continuing and it will continue until um, into next week. Uh, the, the two unions actually represent uh, somewhere around 60,000 workers in Las Vegas and Reno. And 53,000 workers were eligible to vote in Tuesday's strike authorization. And approximately 40,000 members are, are working under an expired contract. But the, the union didn't immediately set a deadline for a walkout. But uh, leadership now has the ability to call the strike at any given moment uh, moving forward. So which companies will be impacted here and what are they asking for? Yeah, so they're currently in talks with uh, top casino employers uh, on the Las Vegas Strip. Um, that's including MGM Resorts, Caesars, and Wynn Resorts, among others. Uh, the unions are asking for better pay, uh, a reduced workload and quotas, and provisions of safety protections, uh, among other things. Now, the strike hasn't yet happened. What do you expect the impact will be if it does happen? This is a sure. huge industry. Yeah, so depending on how long and how widespread the strike is, you know, it could have the potential of actually shutting down the Las Vegas Strip. And that's pretty significant. And this is more on the extreme end, but still there's definitely going to be impacts on the Las Vegas uh, hospitality industry. You know, I mean, if we just think about it, if the workers are on strike, I mean, who's going to come to clean your room, right? Uh, nobody wants to clean their own room when they're on vacation. And if there's no one cooking, that's going to reduce the options of food you're going to have. And because of that, you know, tourists might say, you know, I'm just not going to go that week. I'll cancel my flight. Uh, I'll cancel my bookings. And, you know, if that happens, it could have an impact on revenue and potentially the local GDP over there. Yeah, culinary workers are a key part of the tourism industry. Of course, it will be a, it could be a huge impact. Thanks so much, Don. Great to hear your thoughts on yeah, this. Yeah, always a pleasure to be here, Steph. Teens are hit by over 200 phone notifications a day, and they're tempted to look at them even in the middle of class. So how serious is this, and what can parents do? And TD's Emma Shee investigates. Teens are distracted by around 237 phone notifications per day, according to a new report from Common Sense Media. Of the 200 teens who participated, many got over 500 notifications. One-fourth of these notifications came during school hours. The teens then looked at their phones for an average of 43 minutes, some for as long as six hours. The kids would check their phones over 100 times per day on average, some saying they struggled to put them down. She may receive 150 snaps in a day, if not more. Uh, there's a constant 
that's NAF attack. Psychotherapist Carl Nassar's 14-year-old daughter is also barraged by phone notifications. He says having a good relationship with our teens is a key way to deal with the issue. How do we have the conversations over and over again about, okay, you know, it's dinner time, let's put the phone aside and let's have our meal. Uh, you know, when is something really important and when can something wait? Teens can also access age-inappropriate content on their phones. Almost half of the teen participants did so, accessing content like pornography, betting apps, and violent games. A small number used social media to chat with strangers, a risky phenomenon that could lead to problematic interactions with adults. Teens are very lonely these days. The lockdowns kept them away from their friends, uh, made their only communication for the most part online. So their phone becomes their friend. Uh, and that is really sad. Psychiatrist Carol Lieberman says parents can take the phones away for periods of time and set time limits. They should also introduce their kids to other activities like sports or dance class. That will help them realize what they're missing out on. It's always a process, right? There's no end to when we, you know, when she's got it and we leave her alone. Psychotherapist Carl Nassar says his 14-year-old daughter has matured with her phone use. She can distinguish between notifications that are important and ones that can wait. But there are still times when she gets hooked, and that's when the conversations begin anew. Emma Shi, NTD News. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with details of a blockbuster trade in the NBA. That's right, Steph. Seven-time All-Star Damian Lillard is heading to Milwaukee in a three-team trade that also includes Phoenix, according to a report by ESPN. Now Portland will receive Drew Holiday, DeAndre Ayton, a future first-round pick from Milwaukee, as well as future draft considerations. The Suns, meanwhile, will receive several role players to complete the deal. The trade makes sense for several reasons, as Lillard wanted out of Portland, while Milwaukee, which won the 2021 NBA title, is under pressure to resign Giannis Antetokounmpo to an extension. The former two-time MVP said recently he wanted to be comfortable knowing the organization would continue to compete for NBA championships before doing so. And in college football news, Michigan State formally fired head football coach Mel Tucker today according to a statement released by the school. Now what's at stake here is the $79 million left on his contract. The school says they're firing him with cause in what may be an attempt to get out of paying him the remainder of the deal. Tucker's reportedly been under investigation since January by the university after being accused of sexual misconduct by a lady named Brenda Tracy. Tracy, who happens to be a sexual assault awareness speaker, was once hired by Tucker to talk to his players. Now last week, the school informed Tucker of their intentions to fire him after the investigation was leaked to the media. The head coach responded saying other motives were at play. He says the university has known the details since March, yet only after the investigation became public did they decide to terminate him. Now Tucker had signed a $95 million extension with the school two years ago after leading the Spartans to an 11-2 mark. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, 14 baseball games are on the schedule, but none bigger than the finale of the Mariners-Astros series, with both teams needing a win to stay alive in the wild card race. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. And before we go, be sure to tune in for our special coverage tonight following the Republican debate. 
NTD's Tiffany Meyer will be taking an in-depth look at what happened, who stood out, and what it all means to you, the voters. That's tonight, starting at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.